0: Welcome to the latest instalment in the SMB People podcast series, Holiday Headaches. I'm Holly Ryan and I'm joined today by Chantelle DeFilippis to discuss a number of issues that employers may experience as we enter the busy summer holiday season, which is why we've appropriately named this podcast Holiday Headaches. In the next 10 minutes, Chantelle and I will be discussing the challenges employers might face in more detail, particularly as travel disruption is likely... continue this summer and possibly get worse as Heathrow has announced a cap on flights and flight cancellations become ever more prevalent. What should employers do if one of their employers is stuck overseas?
1: Well unfortunately travel disruption could affect a number of employees this summer particularly as more people are taking steps to travel after two years of restricted travel but if an employee is stranded overseas and has the means to continue working an employer could allow the employee to work remotely for a short period and the employee would, of course, continue to be paid in the usual way. Longer term overseas working arrangements can be fraught with issues, which we'll touch on in more detail shortly. If, however, the employee is unable to work remotely, perhaps because they cannot undertake their role on a remote basis, or they simply don't have the equipment to work remotely, the employer could allow the employee to take additional holiday from their holiday entitlement or allow the employee to take unpaid leave. But Holly, what happens if an employee's holiday is cancelled or if they submit a late request to reschedule their holiday? Are they allowed to do that or can an employer refuse that request?
0: So, if an employee's flight is cancelled, employees can choose to take their holiday in the usual way and make alternative holiday arrangements, of course, for the same period. But it is, of course, possible that some employees might prefer to rearrange their holiday at a later date. An employee's employment contract and or the company's holiday policy should contain provisions regarding the cancellation of leave. But if there is no express right to cancel leave, an employer doesn't have to agree to a new request, although from a practical perspective, the employer might want to do so. If the employment contract or the company's policy is silent, the default statutory position is that employees must give twice the amount of notice as the number of days leave requested. So if the employee wants five days holiday, they must give 10 days notice, for example. Employers can refuse the holiday request by serving the employee with a counter notice which must be given to the employee at least the same number of days as the holiday period that has been requested and before the first date on which the leave is due to start. So that sounds awfully complicated, I appreciate, but what it means from a practical perspective is if an employee is requesting five days holiday, they must give the employer 10 days notice. The employer can then serve a counter notice to say that that request is refused whether in whole or in part, provided that counter notice is given to the employee five days which is the length of the period of leave that's been requested before the date on which that leave is due to start. That's obviously the technical technical route that that needs to be followed in the absence of a contractual provision. But in my experience, counter notices are rarely used. Most employers will try to act reasonably and accommodate any such request where they're able to do so, particularly when the delay or cancellation is outside the employee's control. But of course, it's not always possible, particularly when an employer has competing holiday requests. The key takeaway point from this is to ensure that any such requests are considered reasonably, consistently and fairly. A separate issue that I think can also arise, it's often um, not thought about, is what happens when an employee becomes unwell when they're on holiday.
1: Yes, it's a good point, particularly given the increased numbers of people testing positive for COVID more recently, both in the UK and overseas. The chances of employees becoming sick on their summer holidays are higher than ever. As you may be aware, it is likely that employees are are entitled to reschedule part at least of their holiday where it is affected by sickness. When a worker complains that their holiday has been affected by COVID, the safest course of action for employers is to reinstate the worker's holiday entitlement for the, those affected days and allow that holiday to be carried over to the next leave year if sickness absence continues to the end of the holiday year. But employers are often concerned about the possibility for abuse by employees who return from holiday in apparent good faith but claim to have spent the last seven days in bed with COVID. So how can they manage that? Well. Employers can seek to prevent abuse by obliging employees to report sickness to their manager on the first day that they become unwell. They can require medical evidence for longer absences, and they can also hold return to work interviews with employees. Recording and monitoring those sickness absences properly will also help by identifying abuse of the system. Employers should also be aware, and employees should communicate that any abuse could lead to disciplinary action. But it may be that employees will not want to take sick leave particularly if they're only entitled to statutory sick pay rather than enhanced contractual sick pay yeah
0: that makes sense chantelle particularly if um obviously holiday pay in those instances when someone's receiving ssp would be more favorable and i think it's probably likely to occur this summer particularly given the large number of people testing positive for covid and the increasing number of people hoping to get away on their summer holidays it seems a bit of a perfect storm at the moment now, another trend I'm seeing more of, and which we've heard mentioned by a number of clients, is requests from employees to tack on a few weeks of remote working from abroad to effectively extend the employee's holiday, whether that's on a short-term basis, when we mentioned previously, whether it's flight cancellation or a slightly longer-term basis. And employers, you know, are sympathetic to such requests and keen to facilitate um, these sorts of requests where possible, particularly in light of the ongoing war for talent and, you know, because they want to seem reasonable. However, there can be some practical risks and costs associated with remote working from abroad, especially as the law doesn't seem to quite course up with our more modern way of working following the pandemic.
1: Okay, so legally, an employer is not under any obligation to allow their employees to work remotely from abroad. But if it is viable, what are those issues that they should consider? That's correct, Chantal. Um, the safest approach, um, because there are a whole host of
0: issues to consider, is to seek UK and local advice before approving remote working arrangements, as it's likely that there could be legal, tax and immigration implications. From an immigration perspective, of course, employees will want to check that an employee can legally work in the relevant country, even if the employee is only there for a couple of weeks. Following Brexit, British citizens no longer have an automatic right to work in the EEA and therefore immigration permissions may need to be sought. Um, this might be an area of change um, in the coming years, particularly as Spain announced only last week that it's considering introducing a visa for digital nomads, which could allow individuals to work from Spain for foreign companies without needing um, you know, the traditional working visa or a local sponsoring entity. So, you know, it might be the case that in the future, we see requests for more permanent overseas working arrangements becoming more common. Um, But it's a case of watching the space for the time being as the legislation is currently working its way through the Spanish parliament and is expected to be approved in the at the end of towards the end of 2022. So this year, it certainly could be an attractive option for employees with family in Spain or, you know, the estimated estimated 1 million Brits who have second homes in Spain. So I've talked about immigration implications but aside from those there are of course a number of other considerations such as whether the employee could benefit from any local employment protections and whether there are any tax implications arising from a remote working arrangement as well as whether the employee's presence in the relevant country could cause permanent establishment issues. In each case short periods of remote working are unlikely to cause these sort of issues but longer term arrangements Arrangements could certainly prove more problematic and trip up well meaning employers. Data protection is also a consideration if the employee is likely to process personal data whilst overseas. The employer would need to be comfortable that appropriate protection is in place to safeguard that data and ensure compliance with the employer's privacy notice. Essentially, the message. I'm trying to give is to seek legal and tax advice if, as an employer, you're looking to implement this sort of arrangement. And while short-term overseas working arrangements, particularly for the odd day, are likely to be less problematic, um, certainly longer-term arrangements um, should uh, certainly be backed by um, advice. And from a practical perspective, If employers are willing to accept those requests to work from abroad, um, it can be sensible to introduce a policy to explain how requests should be made and to ensure that requests are dealt with fairly, consistently and reasonably. It would also be sensible to document any arrangements that have been agreed with staff, so expectations are clear. Any such agreement should confirm the length of the arrangement, the employee's working hours, if those are different. It should also contain an ability to review the arrangement and specify which policies if there's any difference or any change should continue during that arrangement. The agreement should also make it clear that the employee is responsible for any additional tax or social security contributions,
1: the equivalent of NICs. That's really interesting. And we're we're likely to see a lot more of these requests um, going into the future. Another issue that we've advised on recently, particularly in acquisitions, is the practical management of holiday, particularly where employees have large balances of accrued holiday following the pandemic. And um, so all employers should ensure that their staff are taking their holiday at regular intervals and they should ensure that the statutory minimum entitlement of 28 days is taken each year. But in some sectors, it simply hasn't been possible for employees to take their full entitlement as a result of COVID. And the government has recognised this and recently introduced legislation so that where it was not reasonably practical for an employee to take holiday as a result of the effects of COVID, the employee could carry this forward over the next two years. So this means that some employees have accrued significant balances of leave, and it also means that technically, if an employee has booked holiday, even towards the end of this year, and subsequently tests positive for COVID, the employee could carry that leave over into the next year, which is why it's important that employers are proactive when it comes to the management of holiday particularly given that a large number of employment cases, both in the UK and Europe, state that paid annual leave is a particularly important right from which there can be no derogation. And one aspect of this, which should be on employers' minds at this time of year, is that employees may be able to carry over their statutory holiday entitlement from one holiday year to the next unless the employer has and can prove that they've taken active steps specifically and transparently give its workers the opportunity to take their holiday, actively encouraged workers to take their holiday and warned its workers in good time that they will lose any holiday, which is otherwise known as the use it or lose it principle at the end of the relevant year if they don't take it. So we suspect it's unlikely a one-off reminder towards the end of the holiday year will be sufficient to meet this requirement for the information to be given in good time. So as this summer holiday season draws to a close, it's a really good time for employers to review their practices and also put in place measures which regularly remind their workers throughout the year of their remaining in holiday entitlement. And at the same time, remind them of that use it or lose it principle, uh, the consequences if they don't end up taking it.
0: That's um, certainly good advice, Chantal, and something that's often overlooked at this point and only really addressed at the end of the holiday year. So it's a good reminder kind of for employers to get the houses in order now really. Um, As we draw towards the end of this podcast, um, we couldn't finish it without giving the recent Supreme Court judgment in Harper Trust and Brazel a mention. The judgment which was published only last week confirmed that holiday pay for a term time worker with a year round contract should not be calculated as 12.07% of the individual's annual earnings and that all workers are entitled to 5.6 weeks annual leave. This is likely to have ramifications for term time workers and also more widely. The judgment is particularly complex and I certainly can't do it justice in the limited time that we have available today. But we will be publishing a legal update um, with more detail on this case in due course. So please do keep an eye out for this. So I think that's all we have time for today uh, on Holiday Headaches. Thank you, Chantel. And thank you to you all for joining us. Thank
1: you. Bye.